everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. I did an interview with a company and they asked me the question that really got me fixated on salary transparency. They were like, what are your salary requirements? And I realized, you know, this question, I get it in every interview and every single time I get it, I feel like the responsibility to say what I should be paid, you know, and whether that's fair or not is placed on me instead of the company. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Today, my guest is Hannah Williams, and I am so excited to speak with Hannah Williams because she is devoting her life and time right now to something that is very, very near and dear to my heart that I've written about a lot, which is salary transparency. And she has this amazing groovy thing called Salary Transparency Street, which is on TikTok and Instagram and everywhere. And it's really uh, taken the world by storm because it's providing some incredibly useful information. So without further ado, I am going to introduce Ms. Hannah Williams. Hi, Hannah. How are you today? Hi, Kimberly. I'm doing awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I realized when I was doing my research on Hannah, which like opened my eyes up to a lot of things, but that she (laughs) also is a Georgetown grad and she graduated in 2019. I graduated in 1980. So you guys can do the math. Uh, (laughs) We do share that. We obviously went to school in Washington, D.C. So maybe Mm -hmm. that's why we both are a little bit proactive and want to, you know, change the world. I think it's something in the water over here. We're just like, gung-ho about changing the world, making it a better place. (laughs) So let me ask you a question because you are young. You have created something and grown it to, you know, pretty significant proportions in record time. Mm -hmm. Let's get a little bit of color about your background. Like, okay, why why Georgetown? Mm -hmm. I know that you, I don't know what you majored in, but I know that your first job was a telemarketing job. Yeah. Let's just get a little background because I, I'm sure that so many people are are just on the edge of their seat wanting to know how the heck you made this happen. Yeah, I like telling this story not because I'm self-centered, <laughs> but because I think that it's helpful if I was if I was in school, you know, today, I would have loved to hear a story similar to what I've experienced in my career because When I went to school, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. I changed my major like five times my freshman year. And, you know, I started actually at community college um, and then I transferred to Georgetown. So when I started school, you know, community college kind of gets a bad rap. I went because I had a full honors scholarship. So my parents were like, you don't have a choice here. (laughs) We we know that you don't want to go, but you'll thank us in four years. I would have said the same thing if you were my kid. A hundred percent. And they were right. You know, when I look back at it, I'm like, that was definitely the right thing to do. And I loved my experience at community college. I really recommend it for everyone. And, and where and where were you? Where where were you growing up at? I grew up overseas, actually. So I grew up everywhere. My mom is Belgian. So I was born in Belgium and my dad's American. They were both diplomats. My mom was a Belgian diplomat. My dad was an American diplomat. They met in Israel. They got married like three months later. They've been together ever since. So I like grew up traveling the world with them. (laughs) This is another thing that we have in common because my first husband, who I was married to for over 23 years Mm -hmm. and is the father of my children, is Belgian and American. So my kids all have Belgian (laughs) passports and American passports. And they grew up in London for the most part. So we lived in London for a long time. So... Honestly, I've been to Belgium a million times. I had a little wedding ceremony there back in oh, 1987. I and so I cool. actually think I prefer Belgian food to all food in the world and I would be ex- I would be like just 
eating constantly if I lived there. <laughs> so I can't believe it. You're you're, you're Belgian. That's amazing. Kind of. I never meet other Belgians or people who like even know what Belgium is. So that is so cool. We have so many things in common. <laughs> so do you have, you must have two passports then. I do. Yep. And I'm a Belgian citizen. I actually, my mom is getting on my butt about that. I have to go to the embassy to make sure. Yeah. I my daughter's it. had to do that. When you turn 26 or something or 27, mm-hmm. they have yep, to go 27. declare in their own right that they want to be Belgian citizens. Yeah. But honestly, you know, it allows you to work in Europe if you want. You don't need Absolutely. work papers. It's kind of changed a little bit in Britain now because mm-hmm. they left, you know, the EU, which we can, that's a whole other yeah. podcast discussion. <laughs> I but, <roll>. um, <laughs> yeah, but whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that's awesome because it really gives you an interesting perspective. So where were you going? What state were you going to community college in? So I moved to Northern Virginia my senior year of high school. My dad retired from the uh, foreign service. And so he was like, okay, the best place to go is DC. And so we moved up here um, and he kept working, but I I started school. And so I went to Northern Virginia Community College when I graduated high school. So I was definitely in the DMV, Northern Virginia area. I've been there. I've been here ever since actually. So it's the longest place I've ever lived. I, I really like it here. I feel like the diversity and just the culture in this area is something I haven't found anywhere else in the country. So it's definitely my favorite place. I plan on staying here for a while. I digress. Um, So I started school and I changed my major like five times. I went from nursing to computer science, cybersecurity, really just trying to find what I wanted to do. And by the time I transferred from community college to Georgetown, I had decided to stick with business, not because I was really passionate about it, but just because I think it was the only thing I was decent at. <laughs> I was terrible. You didn't at- want to be in the School of Foreign Service? That's no. where I was at. But yeah, I, don't, I yeah. thought I was going to be a diplomat, but I ended up being a lawyer. That was my sister. And my sister is actually a diplomat now. She's in Kinshasa in Africa. She's oh definitely awesome. living the dream. Yeah, she she did exactly what my dad did. I was the total opposite. I wanted nothing to do with the Foreign Service. <laughs> I think I was kind of <laughs> tired of moving around so much. Yeah. And I was like, I want to put down some roots. And I kind of focused on sports business. I was really into sports. I was an athlete my entire life. And I think that's kind of where a little bit of my male versus female kind of trends started coming in because I started realizing that there were big differences with men's sports and women's sports and the opportunities within them. And so I was slowly starting to open my eyes to discrepancies between genders and inequalities, whether I was aware of it of it or not. And I, I was at Georgetown my junior year, start of the spring semester, I would go to Georgetown or uh, Georgetown, D.C., you know, Metro D.C. all the time for internships and food trucks around the area are really popular. And I would see like these huge long lines at food trucks. And I was like, you know, they should really create like an Uber Eats, but for food trucks so people don't waste their entire lunch break, you know, waiting for their food. And I had this idea and I decided to run with it. And I created a startup idea called Trucker. And I really, at that moment, just got full on bit by the entrepreneurship bug. And Georgetown has huge support for students in entrepreneurship. So I was really in the right place, (laughs) whether I had planned for it or not. I ended up being in the great in the right school for entrepreneurship. And the entire time I was there until I graduated, they really nurtured this like spirit in me to change things and to just be a self-starter. But by the time I got around to graduation, it was, I think I graduated like May 12th. And at the end of April, I realized that I was a fish out of water with my idea. I had no money. I was actually in debt to my dad, about $7,500 I owed him on a bad coding deal. So I tried to get my app coded. It didn't work out. I owed him 7,500 bucks and on top of my student loans. So I was like, I don't have a business. I don't have anything, you know, that's going to make money for a while. I have a business that needs a lot of investment and I don't right. have that money. And <laughs> As so do many businesses. I, yeah. Right. So I, I learned really the hard way that I didn't have anything and I was I had to find a job and it was so close to graduation. I was one of the few seniors at the time who didn't have a job yet. All my friends had received their offers in December. I was really freaking out like I, I thought I had royally messed up, you know, and that was kind of a low point in terms of like my aspirations. And and were the other jobs that, that your mm-hmm. compatriots at Georgetown had, were they in investment banking or banks? 
I mean, I believe it or not, when I went to Georgetown in 1976, mm-hmm. that was the very first year of the business school. No way. Yeah. <laughs> they act like they've been around forever. <laughs> well, they have. I mean, that was about a billion years ago. So I'm 64. <laughs> you did the math. It's been a long time. But the point is, is, is that I love that they encourage entrepreneurship. But I'm wondering, was, because, was it because maybe you weren't going down that investment banking banking route? Yeah. That you felt like you were a little bit lost in trying to find your place? Yeah. To be fair, it was a little bit of that. And it was also, you know, everyone at the business school goes into management, consulting, investment banking. It's really like you're either a consultant or you're in banking and finance. And I was a management degree. So I'm actually, I should be working in HR. You know, I should be leading teams right now. And I couldn't find anyone hiring. I couldn't find anybody that was interested in kind of taking a chance on someone who didn't really know what to do. But, you know, I was I was smart. I was bright. I was coachable. There were lots of things that I was open to. And I probably should have networked a little bit more. I'm also very shy and introverted. And that didn't help me when it came to, you know, talking to recruiters and stuff. So I was really down on myself. And I I took an interview in Arlington, like right across the bridge at a telemarketing firm. And it was literally cold calling people. And I was going to try my my role would have been to sell people legal software, you know, like LexisNexis stuff. And they made me an offer for $40,000, which... I thought was great. You know, I I thought that was great money at the time. And I accepted it because I didn't have any other offers. So I graduated on a Saturday and I started working at that firm the following Monday. (laughs) Started right away. And and so this is a thing I think we do not do well by our our children and our young people is that we don't ever really teach them about personal finance and personal advocacy. And again, as I mentioned to you before we began the podcast, I kind of look at things through the lens of women and try to help them in their sphere because I feel Mm -hmm. like not as many people are talking to them. And I also think as children grow up, it may be that people don't speak to their girls in the same way about money as they speak to their sons. Absolutely. And I want women to negotiate more. I've read that 20% of women never negotiate. And I think we should have a personal finance in high school as a requirement, but only three states in the whole country require that. (laughs) And And I think part of learning how to be a professional is learning how to do your own advocacy. Yeah. And I agree because uh, I've read that you, you know, you you say it shouldn't be all up to the employee and I 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, if you don't negotiate for yourself, nobody's going to do it for you. Right. So when did the light bulb go off? This wasn't going to be your permanent gig. The first day. <laughs> the first day. I knew immediately, I knew it in my gut, my my brain was just red alarms beeping like, Hannah, this is not for you. This is, you're not supposed to be here. This isn't what you want to do. Um, and so I like started looking for another job basically my first week. And, you know, coming straight out of school, starting my first job, trying to talk to people was not easy because they were like, well, you just started this job, you know, like, what do you want to do? And I I, I got so frustrated because Anytime I felt like there was kind of confusion on their end about, well, she doesn't really seem like she knows what she wants to do. I was like, of course right. I don't. <laughs> I'm right. 22 I'm like years 21. old. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. Exactly. What do you want? I was like, I haven't experienced nearly enough to know what I wanted to do. And so it was really, that was really tough for me. And, you know, going back to your comment about advocacy and teaching girls how to advocate for themselves. When I was in school, you know, and I went to Georgetown, great, fantastic school. I didn't have a class on workplace advocacy. I didn't have a work 101 class. So even though I graduated with a very prestigious, expensive degree, I still did not know that you were supposed to negotiate your salary. I didn't know how to do market research. I didn't know what the laws were, you know, that you it's illegal to sign an NDA, you know, saying that you can't talk about your pay. It's illegal for the company to tell you you can't talk about your pay. I had no idea about any of those things. And so I started, you know, doing other job interviews. Eventually, thank God, I got another job. This company really took a chance on me breaking into data analytics and government contracting, which is very prevalent in the D.C. area. 
Um, they found my resume actually on Georgetown's alumni network. So Georgetown okay. did in the end kind of come through for me with helping me there. But I started a new career path in data analytics and government contracting, which I actually ended up really liking. Um, it's funny, I thought I was terrible at math. I thought I was really bad at science. Definitely not a STEM girly. You know, I, I would have avoided right. anything about STEM. And when I started the job, I realized I'm actually pretty good with numbers. I'm, I'm very organized. And I like the fact that numbers tell a story and that numbers can lie, but most of the time they don't. You know, it's very straightforward. And so Correct. I think that in a way, my personality really meshed with being a data analyst. And I, I fell in love with it. And I started job hopping to try to make more money because I realized like, I was not going to get a good raise staying with one company forever. You know, the amount of time it would take me to pay off my student loans was going to be decades. And at the time, I was really focused on paying off my student loans. That was something that I, I was kind of ashamed of the fact that I graduated with the student loans because my parents had put a lot of time and effort into saving money for me and my, my sister to go to school and graduate debt free, which was part of the reason why I chose to go to community college. But Georgetown was very expensive. It's so very I, expensive. I mean, my kids yeah. all had student loans and you have three kids two years apart, you know, going to private universities. It's it's it doesn't you know, unless you're really, really wealthy and you've really done your forward planning, you know, yeah. for, with 529s from the day they're born. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, student debt is kind of part and parcel to the experience, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. And so I felt really dragged down by it. And I felt like, you know limited with my potential, my earning potential, everything. I just became really fixated on it. So I narrowed down on job hopping as a way to increase my income and pay off my student loans. At the time, I still wasn't negotiating my salary. Anytime I did an interview, I was waiting all the way till the end of the interview process. So like four or five, you know, calls, meetings deep to hear the job offer that they were going to give me. And then I would decide, okay, like this is enough for me to leave my company. This is worth it. I would accept, you know, I wouldn't negotiate it or anything. And so ultimately I got to this job as a senior data analyst. So the job came with like a promotion and it came with $90,000. So I had doubled my income in almost like a year and a half since starting in my telemarketing job. And I thought I was killing it. I thought I was making a good amount of money. You know, I, I thought that I was killing it for lack of a better phrase. And I, immediately when I started that job, within like a month, my only other colleague on my team was fired. And so overnight, the role that I had accepted switched. You know, I was now supporting all the roles or all the teams that he was responsible for. So my workload doubled. Right. I very slowly, I started working 40-hour weeks, you know, full 40-hour weeks. Now I was working 45. Now I was working 50. And eventually it got to the point where I was starting to work before the sun had risen. And when I yeah. stopped, it was well into the nighttime. And so yeah. my relationship- Like a legal, with, like a law firm job. You're doing exactly. 90 hours a week. Yep. And my my company never replaced my colleague. They used, you know, the money for his role on software that I ended up not using. And so it was really unfortunate because I felt like I had accepted a role that was completely different within a month of me starting. And I was a little confused. I thought that the company would support me when I told them that I was starting to get burnt out. You know, I was very transparent about, you know, I'm really burnt out. Like, I don't have any time. My relationships are suffering. You know, I, basically, this question just started kind of creeping in the back of my mind. Am I making enough for what I'm sacrificing? So you were killing it, right? You you had, in absolute terms, increased your salary yeah. almost twofold. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, again, you were looking at it from a personal lens, mm-hmm. but you weren't thinking, is that an appropriate compensation for that job Not at on all. a relative basis? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm starting to see here. You're really good with data, so you know how to do analysis. Yep. And you realize <laughs> that you were looking. So, like, for me, like, everybody has a different number that they need to live on, right? But mm-hmm. that shouldn't be the number what you're getting paid. Because right. the job might be, you should be paid more because that's what the job, you know, yeah. re- is is requiring of you. Mm-hmm. Also, when they got, when this other guy got fired or left, was there ever any attempt on their part to say, okay, you're going to have increased responsibilities, so we're going to increase your salary? Nope. 
No. And if you went to them, how would they have reacted to that? You did go to them, didn't you? Well, I told them eventually a couple months later, like, I'm really burnt out, you know, like, I can't keep doing this. But when it first happened, you know, I had only been in the role like a month. So my mindset was, don't rock the boat, you know, don't ask questions that would cause them to lose faith in you because you might be next. You know, I was brand new. I knew that they were really taking a chance on me because I was now in communications data analytics. And prior to that, I was more in like legislation and stuff. So in data policy. So I I was really insecure about my role in the company and on the contract. So I really didn't want to rock the boat and ask questions, you know, like, when are you guys going to replace this guy? And eventually I finally did a couple months later when things started getting bad. I was like, you know, was there any plan to replace my, my colleague? And they were like, oh, well, we spent the money already on that software that you use. And I was like, I don't use that software. You didn't even consult me about whether or not I needed it, you know, so. That's terrible. So the question about whether or not I was being fairly compensated just started creeping into the back of my mind. And also this was the height of the great resignation. It was 2021. So people were quitting their jobs left and right. The question about, you know, is the job worth it? And are you being treated fairly was really floating in the air. And that introduced me to this idea of advocating for myself. So one day I was like, you know, let me just do a quick Google search. You know, how much should a senior data analyst make in the Washington, D.C. metro area? So let me ask you, you, how did you do that research? Glassdoor, Indeed, where did you get that info from? I Googled it and I probably clicked on every single link on the first three pages of Google that popped up. The main sources that I really relied on for my research was Glassdoor, ZipRecruiter, Salary.com, Payscale, Indeed, basically any reputable site that I found, which, you know, had a good amount of data, good focus on tech. You know, I was really trying to narrow down my salary based on my location, my years of experience and my educational background. And that was difficult, right? Because if you look up that data, what comes back is an average number that the site has. You know, they don't give you like a step by step like this is, you know, follow the line to. So it was tough. But I knew based on that research that everybody who was reporting their salary and my similar role was making six figures and I wasn't. Um, They were making like 110 to 130. Which is a lot more. Significantly more, you know, and part of me was like, well, I'm young, you know, I've just started, I don't have a data background, you know, maybe I'm not worth that much. But that was BS to me because I was delivering the work. I was doing what they asked of me. I was a senior data analyst supporting a major contract. And that to me just, it it got the idea of like whether or not I deserved it completely out of my head because I was like, bottom line, this isn't right. And Then I got angry. (laughs) You know, I I had disappointment. It was a roller coaster of emotions. And I think what was really disappointing to me was up till that point, I hadn't realized that work was not just a business relationship. It was a business decision on both sides. Um, And, you know, there's profit and loss that comes into that. And ultimately, when a company hires you, They're not hiring you because they like you. They're hiring you to complete a job and they're hiring you to pay a certain number. And they have access to the same data that I do, you know, market research. So they would know whether or not they're paying a fair market rate the same way I realized that I wasn't getting it. Um, And that was really disappointing because I trusted my employer. I liked them. I was really proud to work for them. And that changed almost overnight. And so I put together this two page letter with like all my research. And not only that, I put together like the kudos that I had received from our client. I put together the the quantitative impact I'd had on the contract in like the short few months that I'd already been working for them. And I was like, I need my salary to be raised to market rate. Like, can I get X more? I think I asked for 105. I even undervalued myself. Yeah, you even you did not go for the top number. I didn't go for the top number. I still 
went low, which, you know, in hindsight, (laughs) I'm so annoyed with myself, but it didn't matter because they ran me around in circles for like three months. It took a really long time to get an answer from them. I had to keep emailing them every week. Like, is there an update? Is there an update? That's so annoying. It was so bad. And finally, they got back to me and they were like, you can't get a raise until you've been with the company for a year. Like we don't give out raises to anyone that hasn't been here a year. And on top of that, we don't give out raises of any more than three to 5% at any one time. And that was way less than what I was asking for. Yeah, but this wasn't even a raise. This was like Mm -hmm. a different job. So, and I just want to make a comment. Everything that Hannah just described in what she did in writing the letter, having comparative analysis of other jobs, you know, referring to the, you know, the good words and recommendations from her clients and so on and so forth is textbook. I mean, this is what Mm -hmm. Harvard Business Review tells you you should do when you're trying to negotiate, frame it communally, blah, blah, blah. You did all of that and you still were told no with some arbitrary, you know, kind of BS line. Oh, (laughs) we're only going to do it if you've been here a year, whatever they come Mm -hmm. up with not to to do it. So, That is frustrating because you did everything right and yet you still got no for an answer. Mm -hmm. And I think it was at that moment where transparency started becoming kind of a solution to me and something that I became fixated on, you know, and while I was thinking about all that, I started interviewing for another job because I and there were several moments where things got so bad. I was so burnt out on the contract that I almost quit multiple times without a backup. Like I still didn't have another job, but and it was so bad. So I knew that I had to keep looking because if I was at a point where I was going to quit my job without something backed up, I was at my limit. And eventually, thank goodness, I stuck with it. I did an interview with a company and they asked me the question that became really got me fixated on salary transparency. They were like, what what, what are your salary requirements? And I realized, you know, this question I get it in every interview and every single time I get it, I feel like the responsibility to say what I should be paid, you know, and whether that's yes. fair or not is placed on me instead of the, the the company. But see, that goes back to the point again where they're they're kind of they're very clever that way. Right. Yeah. Because they're saying. What's your salary requirements? What do you need to live the life that you want? And they know you're not that you're not going to like double down and say, I know, you know, twice as much because people need jobs. Yeah. So to me, this is so unfair because mm-hmm. there's no relativity. You're like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, okay, so I may need a, a more money than you do mm-hmm. uh, to live. So I might come up with a higher number because that's just what I need to live on. Yeah. And that's no way to value what the work product of that job is. It's insane. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I realized that a lot of the times when I've been getting salaries and, and offers and stuff, in hindsight, the offers I was getting were not based on pay structure. They were not, you know, quantitative. They were based on what I had said my salary requirements were, which differs probably to people who have families. You know, I was in a, I was just in a couple, you know, I didn't have kids. My, My expenses are so much lower. So when I look at a dream salary, it's way less than someone who has kids and is married, you know, and, and that should be irrelevant. That, that should really be irrelevant. Um, I find this is one of the things that really ticks me off because I do think women suffer a bit more than men from this Mm -hmm. phenomenon. Absolutely. And, you know, there is the motherhood penalty. Women, you know, have 4% decrease in pay for every child that they have. Men get a 6% bump because people think they're going to be taking care of their family when a lot of women are now primary breadwinners. Yeah. But none of that should matter because it's about an objective job that we're going to be doing Mm-hmm. And how do you value that, whether you need 50000 or 250000 to live on? This is right. what the job is. This is what the going rate is for this job. Period. Yeah, absolutely. And so I decided to flip it on the recruiter and I asked her, you know, well, I know what my requirements are, but I, I would like to check what your budget is just to make sure that it's in line with my requirements. And she didn't skip a beat, you know, and I credit her so much for giving me this opening to transparency that I desperately needed. And she was like, yeah, our budget's about $115,000. And I was like, 
perfect. That is right in line with my expectations. And sure enough, they made me an offer for 115K. I tried to negotiate it, didn't succeed, but I was happy. You know, I felt like I was making my market rate with that. And that was the job I was working until I quit to do Salary Transparent Street full time, which I started like four months into that job because I couldn't shake my experience in being underpaid and how it had impacted me. And I started a personal TikTok account where I started talking about, you know, how much I made in every single one of my jobs and how I, you know, learned about the importance of negotiation, how I started advocating for myself. And a couple of my videos went viral. And that was when I realized, you know, no one's talking about this. And the only way that I felt I could really show the value of transparency was to put it directly in front of people. And the way I was going to do that was to ask people, strangers on the street, it was a very simple concept. And how are and people, how do people react? Because I do think, you know, I've done some research on this. There was just recently an article in the Wall Street Journal about it and about whether it's a good thing. It makes workers more motivated or less motivated. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder if people even think about it or know enough about it. I know about it because I wrote the book, The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women, and where I talk mm-hmm. about intentional career choices and negotiation and how you have to think about these things on a micro and macro level. Yeah. So we need to get policymakers to think about it. But mm-hmm. I know for a fact that salary transparency has never been able to pass the mm-hmm. current Senate, and they're not going to do it. I mean, there are a bunch of you know men, for the most part, and people who have made a lot of money in their day. And for some reason, they believe capitalism should not accommodate salary transparency for some yeah. inexplicable reason. It's, so there are a couple of states that have made it a law. I think New York is one, maybe yeah. California. Colorado, Nevada. Yeah, we've got some good movement. But whether you're a man or a woman, this is something we all should be expecting to be a law. I agree. Like there is no downside to this, right? No. So when you're interviewing people, What are they thinking and feeling and saying about this? Fully support it. People that I don't interview who say no to the interview because, you know, they don't want to be on a massive platform, which is completely valid. They still tell me that they value transparency. They're like, you're doing an amazing thing. We need this. And I think it points to the fact that, you know, you don't have to be on Salary Transparency Street to practice transparency. The value of transparency and talking about your pay really sees itself through in conversations in the workplace and between colleagues and friends and family, not on, you know, my my page. The value of my page is really to try to deconstruct the taboo around, you know, the the feelings people have about these conversations because we've been spoon-fed by capitalism and corporate America that these conversations are bad, and they're not. They're so valuable. You have no idea how much you can make until you know how much you can make. And if no one's talking about it, that limit, you have no idea what the limit is. To me, it's so ironic because think about 18th, 19th century England, for example. Yeah, It was, you know, not acceptable to ever speak about money, right? Nobody ever wanted to talk about money. And then you think about capitalism, where all we ever talk about is money, is like you would think if workers, and according to this Wall Street Journal article, when people found out what their managers were making, it motivated them to work harder to achieve that number. So in my mind, it's kind of a pro-capitalist move, whereas Mm -hmm. I think some of the people in the Senate may say, well... It will. It's going to cause fighting. It's going to cause fighting, or it's going to make a business owner have to pay maybe somebody more than they want to. And as a business Mm -hmm. owner, it's up to them as to how they want to do it. But if we're all about increasing global productivity, then I would think knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you have, the more motivated you're going to be to make the moves that you want to make to get to the point where you can be economically based on the jobs that you want to get and what other people are getting paid. Absolutely. So when people tell you, they say, okay, this is what I'm making, have they generally been content with that or have they felt like they are behind the eight ball? 
You know, that's the one. Sometimes we get comments from people who are like, oh, they're lying, you know, and I actually don't think people lie about their salaries, I, you know, because why would you? It's going to be seen by millions of people. <laughs> like it's not it doesn't behoove you to lie. But sometimes I do think people if they do lie about anything, it's when I ask them if they feel they're fairly paid. And most of the time we hear yes. Sometimes we hear people go, mm, you know, I don't know. I haven't, I think I've only heard like two or three people say flat out no. And I think that there's a little bit of fear of repercussions from their their company if they say no. And I understand that. So I, I do think that there might be a little bit of <laughs> a little lack of clarity there with people who think that they're not making enough. You know, and I, I think that one of the arguments that I've heard a lot against pay transparency is people will say, well, then everyone's going to think that they're underpaid. No one's going to think that they're they're fair pay, fairly paid. I disagree with that entirely. The entire point of pay transparency, not just, you know, from the employees being able to have access to it. To be able to have a transparent system means that the company has to go into their records, you know, all the data, all the salaries that they pay people, and they have to recognize whether or not people are fairly paid, which means that they have to develop a pay structure, a system, a way that they can very clearly say, Karen in this role makes X because of X, X, and X. And that has to be very clearly structured. That way, you know, there won't be any questioning about, well, this person makes more than me and I don't understand it. That's the system we have now because of secrecy. So there is more infighting in the office about pay because of secrecy. If we make things transparent, that means that there's an actual structure in place. So actually, you wouldn't have anybody say, I don't think I'm fairly paid. I think I'm underpaid because there's objective standards. It's called, (laughs) it's exactly what you were doing. It's data analysis. Yeah. And it's actually, in my mind, kind of the epitome of the free market economy. Yep. Right. So for all of those people out there that, you know, think (laughs) we're trying to make this a socialistic thing and everybody should get paid the same. This is not that. This is not that. This Mm -hmm. is about... Companies knowing why they're paying employees what they're paying them for the job they do, Mm -hmm. being bold enough to put it out there so that people who are trying to work can make, you know, a logical evaluation as to whether or not they want to do that job based on what that job is valued at on an objective basis. Right. So this message of yours, I think, is well overdue. And I'm really glad that your journey took the twists and turns that it did to, to kind of put a light under you to just go do this, you know, kind of pivot and start yeah. this whole program. So I want to know a couple things about actually you building this business, right? Yeah. Because you went from having this job and it sounds like you didn't have a job. You just quit and decided <laughs> you're going to really make this yeah. your, your job, which I applaud. And I know, you know, not everyone can do that. And I mean, not to get into it, but if you if you do have your emergency fund in order, you might be able to do it, which gives you a little breathing room to pivot. But mm-hmm. so you you've done this. So you start this business. You are obviously, I would assume, on a shoestring as most people are at the beginning of a business. Yeah. How did you get funding from an investor, mm-hmm. and what did that all look like? And then the next thing I'm going to ask you is, you know, where where do you think you're going with all of this? Yeah. So. I will say that I feel my situation is very unique. And when people are like, well, how did you make so much money? How can I do that? I want to preface that when I started this page, like the first day I put an interview out, it went mega viral overnight. And all our videos that we posted, and we posted basically one video every single day for the first like six months all of those videos went viral, like easily over a million views each. And why do you think that is? To the extent you have any idea, mm-hmm. you know, because I know these things can be random. What <laughs> is it about the videos that you think, like the very first one that you did, who mm-hmm. who were you interviewing? How many people? Mm-hmm. And what do you think happened that made everyone go like, wow, I need to watch this? Yeah, I think that it was the biggest thing was, People have been, you know, talking about salaries and stuff for decades. You know, I'm not going to be the first to say I'm the first person to ask people how much they make. But we were the first page 
to do it in our style where we went on the street and we asked a ton of people, what do you do for a living? How much do you make? And questions about their career. Like, how did you get here? You know, what background do you have? Tell us what has worked for you. I have been on social media since I was, you know, in middle school. Like, I've been around. I've never seen anything like that. And so I think that part of the success was that we were the first to create something of this caliber. And we had like four people in our first video. So it was very like quick, high salaries as well, which, you know, to me, when we were asking, I didn't think that they were high salaries because I was interviewing in D.C. But from an outsider's perspective, you know, someone in Idaho hearing someone make, you know, six figures. Whoa. Yeah. Well, the average. What is the average pay? I think it's like fifty two thousand. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's in the 50s. So definitely. So I think it was a little bit of the first to do it the high salaries based on our location and also the structure, you know, and how we presented it, the editing, a lot of things that just caught with people. And also we had a really cool name. So I think people were like, oh, that's cool. Like I know exactly what that is. Instant follow, you know, and so our page blew up overnight. And within like two or three weeks, I was so overwhelmed with balancing both and really more so my my full-time job I mean and salary transparent street but really my energy and like my passion was fully into salary transparent street I was like the thing that I kept thinking about was whenever I was doing a job interview and people were like why are you leaving your last role I would always say and this was a hundred percent true I'm looking for a place to have more impact you know where my work actually helps people that's what I wanted And I found it like I literally created an account where I get to help people every single day with my content. So to me, it was a no brainer that I wanted to do it full time. And I was also kind of thinking, this is my moment, you know, like you don't this doesn't happen to everyone. You have to grasp it and you have to run with it. I was 25 at the time that we launched. I live with my fiance. So I have like really good support. I had an emergency fund. I had a great emergency fund. I want to say I love I love this girl. Okay, (laughs) she's an entrepreneur, a risk taker and She had an emergency fund. (laughs) Yep. So I'm a risk taker, but having the emergency fund was so crucial to me to take the risk and know that it, I would be able to do something with it. Like I had a plan. It wasn't like, I'm going to quit my job and become a content creator. I knew what I wanted to achieve. And so I think that being bit by the entrepreneurship bug way back when, whether it went to sleep for a little bit, it just came right back. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I didn't really know what the role would look like. You know, it was going out and doing interviews, editing content. You know, I basically just created my own role. But right now, my formal title is founder and CEO of Salary Transparent Street. So I run all our operations. I have an right. executive I mean, it's assistant a business, now. Right? It's a business. Yeah. Yep. So I'm I'm fully running a business. And to get back to your question about, you know, revenue and how we started making money, We didn't make money like on brand partnerships, which is our bread and butter until I think September was when we signed our Indeed deal. But from like the first week we launched, we started talking to Indeed, LinkedIn, ZipRecruiter, Glassdoor. And did you approach them or did they approach you? A little bit of both. So I started working with these two agents who are in the content creation business. They approached me and they were like, you know, we love what you're doing. We would love to connect you with some partners. And so they already had some contacts with some of those companies. There were some people that I was talking to that I had reached out to on LinkedIn that we brought together. And ultimately, we started like comparing packages and offers from all these different companies. And I ended up saying no to LinkedIn, Monster, and ZipRecruiter before getting an official offer from Indeed because Indeed was the only company we talked to that I personally had like used prior in my career that I really loved. And that was important to me. But they also were the only company that really fixated on our mission for salary transparency. They were talking to us about what they were doing internally, you know, how they were pushing salaries to be listed on their job listings on their site. And I was like, 
I only want to work with people who understand the mission and also support it with and me. want to be part of the mission. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about this, the agents, because I think a lot of people find this a very murky world. It is. It is. More transparency is needed in the agent space. <laughs> so are these like people that call themselves agents for content creators and do they get a percentage? How do yeah. they get paid? And I, I'll preface this by saying that I no longer work with these clowns <laughs> because they fully took advantage of us. They really took advantage of the fact that I didn't know how these partnerships worked. You know, I, I'd never done a partnership with a major deal, major brand before. So I actually ended up giving away 33.3% of our deal to them, which and I will say this to anyone listening, is an absurd percentage. You should not be giving away more than 10 to 20 percent of a brand deal brought to you by an agent, meaning that the person, you know, made that introduction, led a couple of the calls or email communication to get the conversation going. But ultimately, I was the one who pulled together the package. I was the one who am building the content, you know, right. so You're 30, the, you are the talent, so to speak. Yeah. You know? So I learned the hard way that 33.3% was really abysmal and taking advantage of us. So I no longer work with them, but I was able to pivot to, you know, working with other agents. There's a lot of freelance agents out there. They'll probably just drop in your email or you can find them on LinkedIn. But mm -hmm. a lot of the times now I actually create my own deals. Like I manage the partnerships, the email communication, the reach out. I do a lot of that myself just because I don't like giving a cut away for someone yeah. who just made me an introduction. <laughs> and then, then you can hand select who you you want to work with. Exactly. I mean, there are certain messages that will resonate with what you're trying to, you know, if you were going to pair up with somebody who's like totally not in line with what you're saying, then it all becomes mm -hmm. about advertising and branding and not about the message. And yeah, I want to give a shout out to Indeed because <laughs> when I went through this horrific divorce and came back mm -hmm. from London, I really was not in a good place and the divorce decree was not um, followed by my ex-husband. And although there was some money, I had a child at Georgetown and two kids in private high school. Yeah. And I was trying to, we were going through divorce, trying to keep everything, all the balls in the air. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a lot of time when I got back from London, but I had to find a job. And I was 53 years old and uh, there were not a lot of people clamoring to hire a 53-year-old. Yeah. I've had people in the recruiting world tell me to take all of my legal background and legal jobs and investment banking jobs off because what? I was overqualified at my age and all this stuff. So I went on Indeed and I literally applied for all kinds of different jobs. But at one point, Indeed popped up again and said, you would be very perfect to be a financial advisor. Uh -huh. Apply at Morgan Stanley, which is uh -huh. what I did. And I actually took all the tests and I got, I ultimately got the job. I did a little networking along the way, but I got the job and honestly, I mean, I became very successful as a wealth manager. I'm still a wealth manager. That's my day job. Like you, this is my passion, yeah. the fiscal feminist. But it was really because of Indeed popping up in yeah. my email telling me to apply for this job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I did get the job, I did not get paid the same as some of my colleagues who were actually mm -hmm. hired the same day that were younger and male. <sighs> what? And that's because they said that my background at that point was no longer relevant. I hadn't lived. And it was like, okay, I was a corporate securities lawyer on Wall Street, you know, for yeah. like a while. I think my, it's relevant, but I needed a job and I needed health insurance. So <laughs> yeah, that's the you know, they basically <laughs> told me we're not negotiating with you, take it or leave it. And I took yeah. it and I just knew I had to be better than everyone else if I wanted to succeed. But <laughs> honestly, I thought indeed, you know, I always talk about it because it's like that random email. Yeah. You know, help. So I want to understand, I have two things I want to talk to you about, and then we'll wrap up because I know we're getting a little bit long, but one, but I could talk to you all day and I just- I could talk love, about this all day. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm and your passion. And I, it just is so encouraging to me to see someone out there spreading the word about people, you know, engaging in their careers and wanting transparency because, I, you know, it's like- this isn't 1950 where people stayed at IBM for 40 years and just no. were grateful for the benefits and a stable job. Like this isn't that world anymore. So we need to get with it as a society. But what's your end game? Where does this go? What's the next thing? You're interviewing people, you're raising consciousness. Yeah. But where are you going with it from a business point of view? 
and from a message point of view. And then I want you to just briefly talk about the three C's. Yep. So where I'm going with it is to me those three C's, which I'm so I'm thrilled you brought up because I it's kind of like my little pride point where I'm like my Georgetown degree came back in and I was like, figure it out. So my three C's are community, Congress and corporate. And those are really like my focus points and where I want things to go. In terms of our largest audience, it's really our community, it's workers. And you know, it's people in every single career field you can think of. Everybody needs transparency. We all need it no matter what job you do. And so my mission with our community is to show them, A, the value of transparency and encourage them to start practicing it in their daily lives. You know, start having these conversations with your colleagues, your friends, your family, and hopefully our content can give them some courage and some backbone, you know, something that they can bring towards them. Like, hey, I saw something on Salary Transparency Street. I was just wondering, you know, did you negotiate your salary? Things like that. Throw me under the bus if you need to. Use me as an opening <laughs> right. to have these conversations. I don't mind. Then the biggest one for me that I'm really focusing on right now is Congress. So we are seeing a lot of movement with states passing pay transparency laws like California, Colorado, New York City. So there's there's movement that's happening. But to me, I don't think that we're going to get the solution we want until we have a federal law. Something 100%. that- 100%. Yeah, because just going by states doesn't make any sense. And we're, we're already seeing problems that are coming from it. You know, there's companies that refuse to hire anyone who lives in Colorado because they have to abide by pay transparent legislation over there. So if they want to hire people in Colorado, they have to list the salary for those applicants. So some companies are literally choosing not to hire anyone from that state so that they don't have to do that. And do you have any research as to why they do they just feel like it's going to be so disruptive to their workforce that they I think I know what it is. It's two things. First of all, it's going to cut into their bottom line a bit because they are they are going to have to meet people to, at market rate. And I think what they're scared of is once this comes out and people find out that they're underpaid, those people are either A, going to leave or the company is going to have to meet them at their market rate. So they're either going right. to have to spend money or they're going to have to spend money to replace the people that they leave. I could care less about how they feel about it. I'm here for the workers and for people getting paid. So boo-hoo, corporate America. But then I think the other second thing is that companies are not prepared for pay transparency. Right now, you know, the salaries that they're offering people are just based on their own personal decision. If they like an applicant more, they'll just chuck another two or three K on the offer. There's no structure. And, you know, if they had that structure, pay transparency would be really easy, but they don't. And so it's going to take a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of time for them to create these structures. I think that there's a lot of great software out there right now, like GapSquare, Pequity, PayScale. They have software that will literally integrate into your HR you know, system, take all your data and spit out an audit, you know, some type of report that will tell you these people are not at market rate. These people are. This is the status of inequity in your organization. So it's not that hard. I think corporate America is just not willing to change and they're not open to it. (laughs) Is there a study that has been done or could be done where the companies and the states or a state or location, that's California, New York, I don't know, where they have had pay transparency, they've done the homework, and then they can compare that worker productivity went up and added X to the bottom line so that it is actually numerical. It's not like a bunch of, you know, woke people, quote unquote, (laughs) the woke people asking for more information. And as I listened to Fox Business this morning, (laughs) because as a wealth manager, I have CNBC on and Fox Business. I have them all on You got to get all sides. Yeah. And, you know, I heard one of the news people there who's a big deal say, you know, this woke culture, they just want more and more and more regulation. And, you know, they want the child care tax credit oh, I'm sorry, these are the same people that are saying to women they should have babies they can't afford if they don't want to give them a child care tax credit to take care of their kids. And so to them, this is just regulation. Yeah, they're not seeing people. And, and, and you know, this person was like, you know, if uh, I don't think we're in a mess today, I actually think considering all things, we're actually not too bad a shape. There might be a recession, but could be worse. there may not be. <laughs> yeah. Inflation is coming down. More people are employed, whatever. But, you know, this person's comment was, well, if Donald Trump was still president, you know, 
this economic mess wouldn't be here because there wouldn't be so much regulation. No, so how do we fight <laughs> this overriding notion that all regulation, even if it's arithmetically showing that it's beneficial, mm-hmm. is bad? Because this is kind of falling into that big basket of regulation. Even though it's not regulation, it's just information. It's not regulation. And, you know, it really is just straightforward information. It's information that everyone should have access to. What I really like about our mission is that I feel like it shouldn't be a political thing. It shouldn't be a left or right argument. We should all be able to agree that we deserve to make a fair market rate based on what we do, you know, and then. I hear all the time people will say, well, the gender pay gap doesn't exist. It does. And more than that, it's not just, you know, men versus women. To me, what I really dig deep into is that the pay gap is so much worse for minorities, workers with disabilities, the LGBTQ community. Those are the people that if you are in an interview and your salary is being determined by your interviewer, there is open room for bias to affect the salary that you are offered. And that happens all the time. And we know it does because there is a gap. There are multiple gaps. And so- No, it, there's multiple gaps. I mean, the 82 cents is just, I mean, really for- Oh yeah, that's just privileged, the- <laughs> Kind of privileged white privileged women, to be white honest. Women. If, if yeah. you look at, you know, black women and Latina women- It's so much uh, worse. They are really suffering out there. And I, I can't even get my head around what- Anyone in, you know, some people in the LGBTQ community might be going yeah. through. Because, you know, honestly, in a lot of professions, if you're not whatever it is people think you should be, mm-hmm. then, you know, there's always room for bias and people can be brutal. I mean, yeah. And so this is the thing. I just want to say this for those of you who, and I know a lot of these people in my world, I mean, I like to work hard and make money. I'm an ambitious woman. I have been not paid the going rate. I have been, uh, you know, I've been discriminated against against my age. Mm -hmm. And back in the 80s, forget that, there was like no rules back then. (laughs) I was told I shouldn't have a baby or if I will never be a partner in a law firm by my law firm. But, you know, I I do believe in work ethic and I do believe in the concept of capitalism. But Mm -hmm. I do not think in any way, shape or form what you are suggesting is socialism or is any kind of like regulation of pay. Yeah. So just correct me if I'm wrong. But Mm -hmm. your message is in the free market, whatever these skills are worth, the pay should be X because that's what most people think it should be worth. Yeah. And then everyone should know that. So that they know if they want to do that job, that is what the free market is telling them the pay should be. Absolutely. And then it's just completely objective. It's not like, hey, I'm saying that, you know, this job should be paid this because there should be a quality of uh, income. Mm-hmm. Am I interpreting your message right? Because I Absolutely. I don't want people to start criticizing this message <laughs> based on some nonsense that isn't true. Yeah, I think a lot of people hear our mission and they think that what we're advocating for is for everybody in the same role to make the same amount. That's not at all what we're saying. What my mission is, is to make sure that salaries are structured and that pay is structured. So whatever you decide to pay for a role on your team, you have a very clear understanding that you can translate to that candidate or that employee that you are paid X because of actual quantitative factors like your education, your years of experience, your location, all those things. And, you know, you might have, I I don't think that it means that, you know, two software engineers in the same role, same level will make exactly the same. If one software engineer has a master's degree and the, uh, and like a specific skill and their colleague in the same role only has a bachelor's and doesn't have that skill yet, sure, there is room for a little bit of discrepancy there, but it has to be fair. And both candidates, both employees should be able to understand why there is that discrepancy. And going back to why I think pay transparency is so valuable is because now you're telling that candidate who's at a lower pay, this is exactly what you have to do to reach that next level. I think that it's ridiculous that people don't really understand that transparency is a viable system and that it would help people because the corporate, like our actual government, our federal government 
abides by a transparent pay structure. If you work for the federal government, you can see what everybody in your office makes. It's all online. And you have clear steps of what you have to do to get to that next level. It's very clear. Pay is structured. So if our federal government has been abiding by this system for decades, why is corporate America not also doing the same thing? Because right now, pay is just kind of thrown out there as a number that, you know, may or may not suit the candidate based on the hiring manager. It's not structured. And so a lot of people are not making what they what they deserve. And there's also a lot of confusion. Once you have that transparency, productivity goes through the roof. People now know how much they what they have to do to reach that next level. So they're more likely to stay with you longer because they have that clear action plan. It's not secretive and, you know, unsure, like it it would suck to be like, well, maybe I have to stay at this company for a year and maybe I have to do this to reach this next pay level versus, oh, I have to complete this training and I have to go get this certificate and I have to make sure that I know this skill to ask for this next salary bump. And that's what you would get. It just it's a no brainer to me. I think it would help with mental health in the workplace. It would solve so much inequity. It boosts morale in the office. And I think that that's something a lot of companies could use right now with layoffs being really rampant. I think that corporate culture right now is really based on the higher ups and the people that are managing things. There's not really any culture in the office anymore. People are just kind of trying to find what makes them passionate or what pays the bills. There's no, you know, just going into the office for the fun of it anymore. And, you know, work shouldn't be fun. But once you have that pay transparent structure in place, people feel secure and people will feel a lot more willing and excited to go into the office than they are right now. I think it's motivational. I think knowledge is power. And when you know what you have to do, you will be, you know, you'll be motivated to go and do it. And I also think you're right. Like the workplace is in transition, right? There's a lot of talk about, you know, whether everybody should be back in the office eight Mm -hmm. hours a day or the benefits of remote work. I frankly believe that remote work has a place. I think if, you know, people are caregivers, whether it's for children or for parents, you know, I have elderly parents or just for whatever reason, some people may be more productive if they can work remotely sometime or all the time. And I do think being in the office does have some camaraderie and energy that you can share. But if you're in a place where everything is like, you know, dark secrets and nobody knows why anything is the way it is, then it's nothing more than like a dictatorship. It's like a benevolent dictatorship. And that's insane. Like we don't run our country that way. Why should we run our companies that way? Right? Agreed. So I think what you're doing is so important. I have a really, I I feel like I'm a newscaster right now because I'm going to ask you a question. Um, do you think you're going to run for office? Because I would vote for you. I think oh you should do gosh. it. Oh, my gosh. That's so crazy. You know, that's I, I've been told many times that I should run for office. <laughs> and it's I, I've thought about it. I'm not going to lie. I've definitely thought about it. I'm honestly terrified of like the political landscape because I'm worried about if I do this, you know, and I do run for office, how much negative criticism that is not, you know, politically grounded is going to come at me. Like I look at what AOC gets, you know, and I'm just like, gosh, I would just be another AOC. And I I don't know if I could handle the criticism. And but then I'm like, somebody has to do it, you know, (laughs) so why not me? And I don't really see you kind of in the AOC. I mean, what you're saying is logical. Okay. I think in the sense (laughs) that you can, it's you're a dad, you know, you're a data analyst. You Mm -hmm. are a logic person. You are using math. You are not asking for anyone to get a giveaway or a handout or anything like that. No, not at all. I mean, honestly, I think you could thread the needle where people from both sides of the fence could say, actually, this is going to add to productivity Mm -hmm. in this country and in Mm -hmm. our workplaces. And that's the way I want to frame it because I know people, look, people will say all kinds of stuff. Like I, you know, on my Instagram page, you know, a lot of people, you know, you can get hate from all kinds of people. Yeah. I've been called all sorts of things, you know, the an old white feminist. A- I am an old white yeah. feminist. I don't know what they want me to do about it. I <laughs> was born in 1958. <laughs> you know, I was like the glory. I'm trying to take this to the next level. I mean, yeah. anyone who identifies with not having a level playing field then I'm talking to them, okay? Yeah, because same. women are part of that. Women do have some unique things just because, 
you know, they do get stuck doing a lot of household chores and child care because they do not advocate for themselves even in their families. But Mm -hmm. this, what you're doing is, it's almost like it's math, okay? Yeah, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. And I applaud you for everything that you're doing and for getting people to talk about it because that's the first step in everything. And, you know, it's not taboo. Like people used to think it was really taboo to say, yeah. oh, well, like how much money do you make? Like, what do you make for your job? It's and people not. were like, you know, oh my God, like <laughs> why are so you asking rude. me that? <laughs> yeah, why is that rude? It's just like, it's hey, not. it's consumer, uh, you know, consumer information. I want to know. Yeah. So I like <laughs> that you're doing this. I applaud you. Thank you are you. a beacon for all young people. I guess you're Gen Z, right? So I call myself a geriatric Gen Z because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like right on the cusp there. I like grew up millennial and then they were like, you're Gen Z. And I was like, okay, if that makes me empowered, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to call myself a juvenile baby boomer then because <laughs> I, I don't want to be a geriatric baby boomer. I'd really be in bad shape. I'd be have one foot on the banana peel. Um, well, you are awesome. And I just thank you you so much for taking time out of your life to talk to me about all of this stuff. I know that my audience is going to love it. And so tell everyone where they can find you and become one of the five bazillion people that follow you (laughs) so they can spread the word. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me. Um, If you want to follow me, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter. If you don't have any of those, we're at Salary Transparent Street. If you search salary, we're the green bubble. We're usually the first thing that pops up. So I hope to see you on social media around. (laughs) Well, I want you to tell your mom and dad that they have produced an awesome daughter who is going to be a change maker in this world. And if there's anything you can do with your life as a parent, that is the biggest contribution you can make. So if you run for office, I come to DC (laughs) a lot because I still like to come and you know, walk Please around Georgetown. Please let me know. I'd love yeah, to grab I'm gonna, coffee I'm going to hit something. you up, girl, because <laughs> I am a big DC fan. My daughter, um, as I told you, went to Georgetown as yeah. well. And her husband went to Georgetown and his parents live in Bethesda. Family. <laughs> yeah, so we are frequently there and I like to go to the tombs every now and then yes. and just have a hamburger and a beer and pretend sure. I'm 18 again, 1977. <laughs> Sign um, me up. Next time yeah. you come to town, yeah, that's I'd love we'll to go to we'll tombs. Go, <laughs> we'll go to the tombs. Well, you're awesome. I Thanks. applaud you. Carry on spreading the message and, you know, don't be deterred. Even if people say stuff, who cares? They're wrong. You're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, all right, Kimberly. my dear. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.